Hi, everybody, and a very warm welcome to the Overeaters Anonymous 100 pound um, special focus meeting. Today is December the 22nd, 2021, and I am absolutely delighted to hand over the meeting today to the lovely Denise Q, who is going to share her experience, strength, and hope with us. Take it away, Denise, my lovely. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Denise Q. I am a compulsive overeater, recovered today by the grace of a higher power in my life, this program and this fellowship. And um, I'm delighted, I'm delighted to be here today uh, to share some of my story and I'm also quite nervous. I have copious notes written, <laughs> most of which I'm so nervous I probably won't be able to read. Um, and maybe that's a good thing, I leave it up to higher power to um, put the words um, into my mouth and let them come out. So I definitely am um, a compulsive overeater of the chronic hopeless variety. Um, I was in active addiction in this disease definitely for three decades. I went on my first diet um, when I was 12. I'm not sure if that was the, the point at which I crossed that line from being a hard eater to a compulsive overeater or if it had happened earlier uh, or later indeed, but certainly from the age of 12 up to my early 50s, which would have been, you know, four decades, I was active in this disease. Um, and for me, that meant that I was forever on a diet or trying to be on a diet or attempting to be on a diet or attempting to restrict uh, in order to lose weight and inevitably failing and putting any weight I did lose back on with more. Um, and that progression took me from weighing 10 stone, which would be 140 pounds when I was 12, to a top weight um, of over 30 stone, which would be in excess of 420 pounds. So I suppose we'll throw up the, the photographs, Rita, and um, if you don't mind, we'll put them up there. Um, So this is me um, in the bottom left hand corner, I was 24 um, I had just qualified as a solicitor, which is a type of lawyer in Ireland. And that was me after dieting very hard uh, to get down to something approaching normal weight. I was still overweight. At that point, I was, I think about 40, something over 14 stone. Um, that, that would be maybe, you know, up against 200 pounds. And the next photograph up where I'm in purple, and as far as I can remember, because the photograph isn't dated, as far as I can remember, I was somewhere in my 30s then. And I reckon looking at the photograph again, I was probably, this was me after dieting and losing weight. Um, and I reckon in that one, I am probably mid twenties, mid, you know, 24, 25 stone, something of that order. Uh, and at that, you're looking at maybe, you know, 340, 350 pounds. And the top one, I actually remember very well because it was the year of 9-11 and I was on holidays in Lanzarote with a friend um, when 9-11 happened. So that was 2001 and I was definitely talking 30 stone talking 420 pounds in that one. Um, I got to the point where, you know, there wasn't a scales available to me that would register my weight. 
And so the heaviest I know I was is 420. I could have gone over that. Um, and then the next one to the right of that is when my nephew and godson uh, had been born and he is 22 now. So um, can't do the calculation of the years, but yeah, again, I was at that point very heavy. And the bottom one is me today. Um, coming in now with something maybe a little under 180 pounds. Um, so the physical trajectory of this disease for me was very extreme. Um, you know, I went to, um, to being a very, very morbidly obese woman. And I often think it's miraculous, absolutely miraculous, that I didn't have a heart attack, I didn't have a stroke, you know, that I, I, I didn't like, become seriously ill in some way. Um, and being that size and living in the world at that size carries a lot of consequences. Most of them on an emotional level. Yeah, there are lots of physical consequences, but on an emotional level, the damage is very severe. Um, I was the woman who walked down the street with my eyes down watching the pavement or the footpath because I could not raise my head and look at other people looking at me and the size I was because it was too shaming and it was too difficult. I was the woman who dreaded, dreaded, dreaded walking down the street and passing a group of youngsters, you know, kids or young people, because they'd be the ones who would be uninhibited enough to point the finger and say, oh my God, look at that big fat woman over there. And when that happened, I just wanted to die. I just wanted to be dead. And um, it certainly kept me out of relationship, of a relationship, a romantic relationship. There was no way I was going in and entering that game. And um, not only because I felt so absolutely ugly and unattractive, but also because I could not ever, ever let anyone get close enough. You know, let anyone get close, run the risk of someone you know, rejecting me or someone getting to know who I was, that was never going to happen. And in that awful paradoxical way, while I believed, you know, I could not be in a relationship because I was fat, I was actually fat because I was too damn scared to be in a relationship. And that was part of it, obviously. The main reason I was fat is because I'm a compulsive overeater and I have a chronic uh, disease. But that certainly played a part in it. Um, so yeah, those years, you know, from certainly from by the time I hit my early 20s, I was seriously overweight up to my 50s, but what I call the wilderness years, you know, and my life consisted of working and I was quite successful in my chosen career, but that was all I could do. I could work and I could eat and that was pretty much it. And the time came when my eating impacted on my working, you know. At my very worst, in my in some of my deepest, darkest days, I would get up in the morning, I'd get into the car with a book, I'd go to the shop, I'd stock up on binge, I'd go out to the beach, I'd sit in the car with a book, reading and eating, and I'd phone the office and tell them I was sick that day, I wouldn't be able to come in, cancel my appointments. That was, no, I didn't do that every day. I obviously would not have been able to stay 
um, in business, uh, and I had two partners in the firm uh, who, you know, uh, had to be considered as well. But yeah, that's what I did. You know, I ate, I worked, I slept, I hid. You know, I hid. I was in hiding. And the bigger I got, the again, the paradox is the bigger I got, the more I was hiding. You know, how can you miss this colossal, colossally overweight woman? But somehow there was an invisibility in it. Um, because I passed then as the fat woman. No one knew who I was. I didn't know who I was. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I move on because I don't spend too, time, too much time on this part, which is a hard part. <laughs> um, but I know through, I was in therapy for many years and through that work, I kind of connected with that part of me in a, in a, what's the word I'm looking for, in a kind of a symbolic way. I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. I don't know if any of you have ever read the book. I, I read the book when I was in college and I read it every year for about 20 years. I just loved it. It was my go-to book when life got too hard. Lord of the Rings had the answer. <laughs> As in my case, did the food, I thought. But Gollum, Gollum and Lord of the Rings, if any of you have seen the film. Inside me, inside that enormously fat woman, was a Gollum. This shriveled desiccated, starving, miserable, little lump of humanity, just about. Uh, and that was me. That's what I was like on the inside. I was starving. I was starving for connection, starving for love. You know, and it's not that I wasn't loved. I have a very loving family. But I couldn't receive that love. Um, yeah, and I just felt like I was lost, lost in the wilderness. Um, so my journey started um, in my mid-30s when things got really, really bad. And I was at home in my mother's house one day and I broke down with one of my sisters and I said, Jackie, I think there's something wrong with me. I can't lose weight. And she said <laughs> something absolutely remarkable. She said, Maybe you need help. <laughs> and the thought had never crossed my mind that I might need help or that there would be help available. And I found my way into a dietary disorder unit in a hospital up the country in Ireland. And that was the start of my journey. Um, and it was three many, many, many years before I found my way into the rooms. But that was the first step for me. Um, and coming out of there uh, it didn't work for me it didn't work i might have lost you know i might have lost a bit of weight uh, i was close to my top weight going in i might have lost a couple of stone you know i might have lost 30 40 pounds but it didn't work in any meaningful way but coming out of there the psychiatrist who was in charge of it told me i needed to find a therapist um, and because i'm a good girl and i do what i'm told i went off and i found a therapist and that woman probably saved my life I didn't get to grips with my addiction, but I was at that point in my life so bereft and so bewildered and so terrified and so lost. She was the rock I clung to. Um, 
And I got to learn something about feelings because up to that point, I could not identify a feeling. I didn't know what angry felt like. I didn't know what sad felt like. I didn't know what happy felt like. They were just all something to be avoided. And I used food to avoid every feeling. But she started helping me identify feelings. Um, and as I say, that probably did save my life. Um, because I either would have just kept eating myself to death, and it wasn't that I stopped eating, God knows I didn't. I stayed at that very, very, very uh, obese weight for a long time. Or I would have reached the stage where life was so painful, I would have killed myself. And while I never, thank God, attempted suicide, I knew how I'd do it. I knew what I'd do. If it got to that point, I knew how I would exit. Um, and I suppose... Part of what kept me from doing that was I couldn't do it to my family. I couldn't inflict that pain and that grief um, on them. Um, so eating, eating, eating um, was the option. And eventually, eventually, higher power works in extraordinary ways. Eventually, one day, out of the blue, a leaflet, a flyer came in my letterbox advertising a treatment centre in Dublin, and they mentioned the various addictions they treated, and one of them was food. Now, I didn't really know that I was a food addict. I didn't know you could be addicted to food. I didn't even really know, you know, anything about being a compulsive overeater, but I knew I had a problem. So I went to see them, and um, I didn't meet with any great success. They didn't want me. <laughs> they didn't want to take me in. They said, no, they didn't think it was really for me. But the woman I met gave me details of a meeting that was on in that centre every Sunday. And it was an eating disorders association meeting. And she said, you know, you might go to that. It might be some use to you. And so I went the following Sunday. And at that meeting, I met a member of OA who told me about a Sunday meeting in Middleton in Southern Ireland, which would be much closer to me than Dublin was. Um, and she said, you know, it might be easier to get to the Middleton meeting. And I went to the Middleton meeting. And that really was the start of my own journey. And um, for the first time in my life, I was hearing my story out of other people's mouths. You know, I was hearing people talk about stuff that I identified with. I was hearing people saying things that were like deep, dark secrets to me, things they did with food, how they felt, you know, and um, that I had never opened up to anyone about. And it really was a case of finding my tribe. Um, and I would love, love, love to say that that was it, guys. I had arrived and I got it. But that wasn't the case. Because I spent five or six years uh, going to the rooms and I wasn't getting it. I was at least five. I'm very bad on time and dates, but I was at least five, probably six. I could even have been seven. I don't know years going to that meeting, traveling from Waterford, um, a three hour round trip every Sunday uh, to that meeting and getting little bits of abstinence in the sense that I wasn't binging and I wasn't picking up my triggers, but not getting any consistent abstinence. And I'd be back after a few weeks, you know, having had, you know, thought I have it this time, this time I've got it. And I'd be back a few weeks later. Um, saying that I was back in food. And there's one really important thing about that for me. 
the only reason I could keep going back to that meeting, because I was full of shame at not getting it. The only reason I could keep going back was there were other people in that meeting who were struggling and who shared the fact that they were struggling, who shared the fact that they had relapsed, who shared the fact that they were back in the room. And that gave me permission. That gave me permission, number one, to keep going, and number two, to be honest. Because I would not have the courage to go in there and say, I am back in the food if I was the only one. And so I think that's really important. Those people did me a huge, huge service because I couldn't have kept going had I felt I was the only one who was struggling. So after my five or six years, during which I made some very good friends and during which time more than once very kind and courageous members suggested to me, maybe I was one of those people who might need treatment, you know, because some people do. Uh, and I was absolutely not open to hearing that. Uh, eventually, I reached the point where one day I was with a friend who had been in the fellowship and had left. And I opened up about just how awful I was feeling and just how desperate I was and just how hopeless I was. And she said, well, Denise just said, you know, what do you think of going in for treatment? And that day, the miracle is, I was open to hearing it. I don't know why, I don't know how, but that day I was open to hearing it. And maybe it was a case of just being in enough pain. Maybe I had reached that point where I couldn't take any more pain. Maybe it was the gift of desperation because, my God, I was desperate. But that day I heard it. And uh, I'd say within 10 days I was in a treatment centre in Cork. Uh, and that really was the start of my journey. That really was the start of recovery. I'm just going to ask whoever's keeping the time, just give me some idea of what the time is at the moment because I lose uh, track and I don't know where I am in terms Hi, of time. Denise, I'm Caroline. I'm, I'm keeping the time. Um, you've um, 12 minutes. 12. Thanks very much, Caroline. Yeah. Right. So I went into a treatment centre in Cork. I was the only foodie. Most of the other clients there were young fellas, you know, young men of 20 or 30 who had alcoholic problems and drug problems and all sorts. Um, and there I was, this middle-aged woman in with these young lads. And I remember still to this day in group, not that long in, maybe three or four days in, sitting in the group session with these young fellas thought crossing my mind because if I had met these young men out on the street I'd have crossed the road to avoid them I would I would have been scared I would have been keeping well away thank you very much I was sitting there and the thought kind of landed on such a these are basically fairly decent young lads these are nice fellas uh, and you know, they might be you know they might have done some stupid stuff but they're basically decent and on the heels of that came the thought you know, Denise, maybe you're decent too. Maybe you're not so bad either. And that really was a turning point for me. I spent five, I am conscious of the time now and I have an awful lot more to say. I better get on with it. I spent five weeks in the treatment centre. I can put my hand on my heart and say I have not had a binge since. And that I think is about nine years ago. Now, I am not saying I have had perfect abstinence since. I have not. There have been occasions when I broke my abstinence, but I have not, thank God, gone back to that binging. 
And when I came out, I had a sponsor who had been my sponsor for a couple of years. And the woman was a saint and a martyr because I don't know how she put up with me, ringing her, telling her I was back in the food. And she's suggesting maybe we'd work the steps and me saying, oh, yeah, 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 we will, we will. And you're not doing it. Uh, but when I came out of treatment, I worked the steps with her through the OA um, book. And that really then was the beginning of the journey. Uh, and I lost weight. I never lost weight as slowly in my life as I did. I lost weight really, really, really slowly. Um, but I lost weight. I kept going to aftercare, I kept going to meetings, and I kept doing my best to work the programme. But as time went on, things started getting slippery for me, you know. I found I was breaking my abstinence a little bit. I was, you know, not entirely happy. Um, and then I'm jumping, taking big leaps now, but then COVID happened. And I started going to online meetings. And I started hearing about people who worked the steps through the big book and through the vision for the way. And I was hearing something. I hadn't heard before. And I was seeing in other people something I really wanted. So I got myself a sponsor and I started working the steps. And again, I'd love to say that was it. Happy days, but it wasn't. <laughs> I got a sponsor and I started, this is maybe two, two and a half years ago, started working the steps through the big book. Beautiful woman and a lovely, kind woman. And while I was working the steps, I think I had gotten to step 10, step nine maybe. Moving on to step 10, I relapsed twice. And she very lovingly and very kindly suggested to me that maybe I needed to hear another voice. And that was what led me to my sponsor today. And back in September of 2020, I started working the steps again with my sponsor today. And that has been the game changer for me. That has been the absolute game changer for me. What I have found through working the steps uh, through the big book, uh, and, and she was really specific and really clear with me about what um, I needed to do. Uh, and I, I suppose I had some recovery. I had enough recovery to know I needed to do what this woman was telling me. I had to do exactly what she was telling me and follow the directions and just turn up and do it. And thank God I was willing and more than willing to do that. And um, she asked me to come to it with a new mind as a newbie, as if I knew nothing. She asked me to get really, really clear about defining what my abstinence was. Not a big long list of, you know, 27 different foods. Getting really clear about those ingredients that were my trigger foods, my alcoholic foods, and those behaviors. She asked me to be rigorously honest and asked me to write it, because if I wrote it, I'd share it. Whereas if I didn't write it, there was a good chance I wouldn't share it. Um, and I did all of that. Um, and through working the steps that way, I have had what I can truly say is a spiritual awakening and an effective spiritual experience. I grew up in Ireland, I grew up as a Catholic, and I would have been what I would call a foul-weather Catholic. I wasn't practising Catholic, but when things got really bad, and when the proverbial hit the fan, my God, I'd be praying to God, like, yeah. And then once the crisis passed, sure, I wouldn't think of God again, until the next crisis came along. That is not how it is for me today. 
by working steps one, two, and three, I recognized what my problem was. I am a chronic compulsive overeater. I have a physical allergy and my God, I have a mental obsession. I of myself am powerless and I need a power greater than me because I can't lick this. I have 40, de 40 years, four decades of trying and failing to prove that to me. I can't do this. I need a greater power. And then I made a decision. I made a decision. And I turned my will and my life over to that power. Now, again, I was one of those people who thought, that's it. That's great. You make the step three decision and that it, it, it's done forever. Ah, great. And of course, that's not the case at all. I have to make that decision every day. I have to start every day on step one, two, and three. Acknowledging the truth of my condition, admitting my powerlessness, and turning my will and my life over to God. And God, for me, is still not clearly defined. I do not have a clear idea. Sometimes it is the man in the long white dress. You know, the picture I had of God when I was a child, the man sitting with the angels up in heaven. Sometimes it's very vague. All I know for sure today is that God, whoever, whatever God is, manifests in my life through love. That's where I find God. God, for me, is the power of love. And I ask every single day for God to teach me how to love and how to be loved. And to give me the courage to be open and vulnerable to loving and to being loved. Both by God and by those people in my life that I love and who love me. Because I didn't know how to do that. I worked steps four through nine to clean house. Because I had a lot of wreckage to clear. Okay. Thanks very much, Caroline. I had a lot of wreckage to clear before I could have an effective uh, spiritual experience. Um, and again, thank God I was willing. None of my step nine amends were anything like as terrifying as I thought they would be when I was contemplating them back in steps one, two, and three, or step four. Um, and they have proved to be, in a lot of ways, very rewarding. And today I live in step 10, 11 and 12. And step 10 means I have to have a spiritual discipline because left to myself, I will happily go my own merry way. So I have a practice, I have a spiritual practice that I just follow through on every morning. Do I do it perfectly? No. Do I ever miss a day? Yes. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. But if I start skimping on that, while I have great neutrality around food, thank God, and I very, very, very rarely have a thought even of my alcoholic foods. Occasionally I'd have a thought, but it will be no more than a thought. It won't be a compulsion, it won't be obsessive. But what I will get caught on is volume, because volume would be a trigger for me. So if I'm not staying in a fit spiritual condition, I notice there's a little bit extra going on the plate. It's an extra little bit of fruit. And I, to keep myself as honest as I can be around that, I'm a weighing to measure. I weigh and I measure, I weigh and I measure. But even weighing and measuring some days, a little bit extra will creep on. No better signal for me than that I have taken my foot off the pedal when it comes to enlarging my spiritual life. And that today for me is the key thing. My disease is progressive. 
every day I'm in recovery, my disease is progressing. So for my recovery to keep ahead of my disease, my spiritual life has to recover. My, my spiritual life has to be enlarged. I have to stay working my program. I have to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper to the next level. And there is always another level. And I will never have it all. Ever, ever, ever. I'm struck in the big book by how often it uses the word begin. We begin to, we begin to, we begin to. You know, we begin to lose our fear. Fear would have been a big driver for me, driven by fear. Do I get fearful today? Of course I do. But today I have a program to work on my fear. Resentments, do I get resentful? My God, I can pick up a resentment in the blink of an eye. Today I have a program to work on that so that I don't have to steward it. And once I keep doing that, I keep myself unblocked. And I'm going to finish on this because I must be nearly there on the time. And of course, I have probably about five times the amount I've said written down. I was going to tell you everything. Am I there, Caroline? Yeah. Two minutes. <laughs> I'm finished on this. In terms of that spiritual practice, you know, and that relationship with the higher power, some days I have what I call the days of quiet joy. And I'm absolutely connected. Absolutely connected. And I know what it is to be at peace. I know what it is to be serene. I know what it is to feel well in myself. Do I have that every day? No, I don't. Of course I do. No one does. The least addicted person in the world gets that every day. Um, but I have it some days and I know what it is. And for me to keep building on that, I have to go within. It is only when I get still and quiet in myself, get to that place where I'm still enough and quiet enough, and that's all about my head. It's about coming out of my head and coming into my heart. When I get to that place, that's where I get connected with the higher power. That's where I need that. And I call that place for myself the holy ground. That's my holy ground when I'm there, when I'm connected. And my job then is to turn up and do my best to do that every day. Some days I get it and some days I don't, and that's okay. All that matters is that I keep turning up and trying every day. 